Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock, episode number 24 for November 2018. I'm your co-host, Chief Engineer Ken Gagney. And I'm Captain Sabriel Maston. Hello, Sabriel. Ready for another mission? Yes, I am. Good gosh, it's been a month already. I know, and we're only getting these tiny little morsels, about 15 minutes per month. Totally worth paying for CBS All Access. Oh, I had a conversation <laughs> with someone about that this week on Twitter. <laughs> I saw that. It's really so much more economical to just wait until January and then sign up and watch, you know, all four short tracks are going to be an hour. Yeah, uh, honestly, if you do not have it yet, go ahead and wait. They're good episodes, but not economical. Right. And we have a lot to say about this most recent episode, Calypso. But first, we want to catch up our listeners on other news from the universe of Star Trek. Yeah, I just saw, like, moments before we started recording that Michelle Yeoh is allegedly in talks for her own Star Trek spinoff. So she would be playing Mirror Georgiou in the Prime Universe? Well, it's all speculation, but that makes, that's what makes sense. So, hey, we don't... Or, hell, we, it could be Mirror Georgiou in... Or Mirror Universe, so... Before the events of the... Like her ascendancy to Empress? Yeah. I see. Yeah, this is all still in talks, and if you Google for this news, you may see some spoilers, not only about Season 2 of Discovery, but also about Captain George and the larger Star Trek universe, which we're choosing not to share in this episode, because the information is out there if you want it, but right now it's all just speculation, so I would rather just wait and see how this plays out. Yeah, I, I did not keep up with her... Apparently, she said some things on Instagram and at New York City Comic Con that I did not intentionally did not follow and accidentally spoiled here. So, oops. oops. <laughs> but that is not the only news from Star Trek. Let's talk a little bit about some of my favorite characters from Discovery. Sabriel, I think you and I have spent an inordinate amount of time over the course of Transporter Lock obsessed or just musing about the minor characters we see on the bridge of Discovery, like Ensign Detmer. How cool is she? Yeah, <laughs> she's badass. <laughs> and we also have that Daft Punk-type character. Mm -hmm. Oh, we got a name for them, didn't we? Did we? I mean, there is Ariel, but she's separate from the Daft Punk character. Yeah, I could have sworn over the summer. Sometime in the last year, we've gotten a name for that character. I wouldn't be surprised, but their mystery is part of their allure, because we see so little of them, and we can't help but wonder... What are they doing on the bridge? What is their background? Why do they look and act the way they do? Who are they? Where do they come from? What, are the, what is their race? Obviously, someone's got to do the sweet jams. Right. Thank goodness <laughs> for Daft Punk. I mean, otherwise we wouldn't have Tron Legacy either. That, they were the best part of that movie. Uh, I, I'd argue different, but they were a good part of it. <laughs> yeah, they were an essential part. How's that? Yes. There we go. And yeah, I love these minor characters, and that is why one of my favorite episodes of TNG was Lower Decks. You remember that episode? Yeah, that was a really good episode and a really heartbreaking episode as well. <laughs> yeah, it focused on these four minor characters on the Starship Enterprise, and they interacted with people like Riker and Worf and Picard, but primarily it was about these four ensigns who we'd never really seen before. It's an interesting way to show life on the starship that is not just the main seven characters, because allegedly there's, what, like, thousand crew members here? And, like, what do they all do? 
what are their life's goals? That's right. And yet we only ever get to see a very small slice of that. There's so much more happening on the Enterprise, which is potentially interesting. And Lower Decks gave us a glimpse into that. Yeah. Uh, oh, Voyager had their own take on this as well with Good Shepherd. That's right. Is that when they were stuck in the shuttlecraft looking for dark matter? Yeah, they had um, the Delta Flyer and they had uh, basically Janeway taking care of the... It was a very similar concept, but not quite the same because these are people who had never been on an away mission during their entire trip. And so she's like, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to make them do something. <laughs> they're going to enjoy it. And they're <laughs> all like, but we liked not doing it. <laughs> we didn't want to go on away missions. We've seen what happens with people who don't have names. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> kind of sounds like the John Scalzi book, Red Shirts. Have you read that one? I have not. Oh, but... you, I, I recommend it. But yeah, minor characters have so much potential, partly because their stories are so untold. And that is why I was initially so excited to hear that Star Trek... In addition to the currently airing Discovery and the in-development Captain Picard series, they're expanding to yet a third show, perhaps to run concurrently with the others, and it's called Star Trek Lower Decks. Yeah, so beyond that, we have no real idea what it could be, but other than based on the name... Well, we do have an idea, and it's not exactly what I thought it was going to be. I thought maybe it would follow minor characters, and in a way it does. I thought maybe it might even follow the characters from the TNG episode of the same name. It does not. What we do know is that it has a two-season contract already, and that it will be an animated comedy. It'll be focusing on one of the least important ships in Starfleet. All I can think of is um, the Orville. <laughs> think of this. Uh, or I like the Orville. Like, most of the episodes, sometimes they're a little hit and miss, but hey, most TV shows are. And so, hey, if we can... <laughs> the idea... I don't know, I'm just thinking, like, Star Trek, actual Star Trek universe. Um, Orville. Mm. All right. <laughs> well, there is some reason to be optimistic. For one, I've always felt that Star Trek... Oh, gosh. What? I just remembered who I heard was doing this. Wh who? <laughs> the writer for Rick and Morty. Are you talking about Mike Mahan? I honestly have no idea. Well, that is no the Rick and Morty head writer. And I was going to mention him because that's one of the reasons I'm optimistic. He is somebody I have never heard of in association with Rick and Morty, but I did discover his name just about a month ago because he has published a book and he has a Twitter account where he details the plots for the unaired Next Generation Season 8. It's a parody account. It's a parody book. I haven't really explored it too thoroughly, but... By all accounts, it's been quite well-received and is quite hilarious. Yeah, I've heard that too. I've seen some of the tweets. and They are, they are pretty funny. They are good. I mean, the guy's got talent. <laughs> and this is the guy they tapped to write Lower Deck. So they liked his TNG plot so much, they're like, we're going to give you a whole series to enact these plots. <laughs> I think there was a Deep Space Nine one too, but I don't know if he ran that. If he ran it, you said? If, if, he, if he did anything related to that or if it's just someone else uh, jumping on the bandwagon. Well, let's see. I just pulled up Mike Mahan's profile on Memory Alpha, and it doesn't mention anything about DS9, Voyager, Enterprise, etc., only All right. uh, that he did write a short Trex episode that we'll, we will be seeing soon, and that he will then be working on Lower Decks as head writer and executive producer. Right on. I am cautiously optimistic, because I know the guy's funny. Well, one thing I've always thought about Star Trek is that we consider Star Trek to be almost a genre of fiction, when it's not. It's a setting. And in that world where we have this time period, these characters, and this technology, 
You can tell any kind of story you want. You can do murder mysteries, which we sometimes saw on TNG and DS9. But you could also have a bunch of characters hanging out in 10 Forward and have it be like the TV show Friends. You know, you could do a comedy or even more like Cheers, for example. Literally go to the holodeck and create the original, like, the original inspiration for those, like uh, Dixon Hill. Yeah, or, you know, Wagon Train to the Stars. <laughs> yes. So you can tell any kind of story you want in this world, and we, yet we've always told science fiction as if science fiction is a genre, and it's not, really. So I'm excited to see them breaking out of that mold and telling different kinds of stories in the Star Trek universe. I don't think it'll dilute the universe. I can imagine some problems trying to make everything canon and make everything align, and I'm sure that there are going to be some people very upset with that. But overall, I I would like to see what they do with this. Same, and it almost seems like CBS is finally getting it. <laughs> we just want something to watch, and you we you can print money <laughs> as long as you make good content. Well, at the same time, we did have an 18-year run of continuous Star Trek on the air, and I think they sort of oversaturated the market. I hope that we're not going to see another bubble like that that will ultimately burst. Yeah. But we'll see. So we have this to look forward to. No ETA at this time, but we have the Picard series, the Lower Deck series, possibly Empress Georgiou. So let's see what happens next. Yeah, so. So. Should we talk about what we watched this week? Yeah, the reason we're here is Calypso. Shall I give a TLDR? Yeah, please do. So a human who has been adrift on a escape pod for about a month gets tractored into Discovery where he wakes up and finds himself completely alone. The ship is abandoned except for a disembodied voice that he discovers is an AI. He also discovers that the AI has not seen its crew in about a thousand years. So it's just the two of them alone on this ship. And they get to know each other pretty well, perhaps even get a little flirty, perhaps start to fall in love. But then he eventually decides that he needs to leave the ship and go in search of his wife and child, who he has not seen in 10 years. The end. Yeah, so if you want a good story, uh, just um, borrow from the Greeks. (laughs) How familiar were you going into this with the original story of Calypso? I remember reading about it, or hearing, or maybe even reading it in high school. But beyond that, I had lost a lot of that. To be honest, I remember like the vague like person gets stuck on an island kind of thing, but and gets healed up. But I forgot it was this story. To be honest, same here. To be honest, so this seems unlikely for a couple of reasons. One, in high school where we had to take a foreign language, I was not permitted to choose what language I would take. I wanted to take French or maybe even Spanish. No, they forced me to take three years of ancient Greek because <laughs> you know everyday life. <laughs> I can't tell you how many ancient Greeks I've bumped into that I'm now able to be conversant with. Oh, man, that must be so satisfying. I know, right? (laughs) Or not. So, despite taking three years of Greek, I actually never read the Odyssey. Uh, You know, I I think, honestly, reading a lot of ancient Greek, I think it it could, um, reading a lot of those stories, I think a lot of them could drastically be improved with some retranslations into modern or contemporary English. <laughs> there are hard reads. I can imagine that, yes. So, uh, but, but the point being, I didn't know how familiar this story was. That's basically a retelling of Odysseus's encounter with the nymph or whatever, Calypso, on an island where she basically kept him trapped for several years until he eventually left 
in search of his family, and she let him go. Uh, that's, that's, yeah. She healed him up, helped him heal his wounds. and Right. She yeah. saved his life and healed his body. Except in the Star Trek show, Calypso, it's not a nymph. It is an artificial intelligence named Zora. Apparently no affiliation with the aquatic race from Hyrule. Uh, maybe she played a lot of Zelda. I mean, yeah. she had a thousand years. That's right. And speaking of a thousand <laughs> years, I was so relieved that this AI did not, in its thousand years of solitude, have a psychotic break. Because we so often see that, especially with this AI being represented as just sort of a small circle on the wall, kind of like Hal. We didn't see that. It was more like Amazon Alexa meets Her, the movie. <laughs> did you see the movie Her? Yeah, I did. I like that movie. I like that too. And this episode made me want to go rewatch it. <laughs> but yeah, this th- this AI, she is empathetic, she's caring, she's conversant, she has no hidden agenda whatsoever, and yet she is still obedient to her directives, which are non-malevolent. Yeah, I, I could appreciate not going down that trope <laughs> of um, you know, a computer uh, goes haywire and starts trying to kill everyone. Oh, hell, maybe that's what happened. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> But uh, in the past, but no, I don't think so. No, I really like that. I really like this character. And my, honestly, the first thought I had thinking about this, like, well, this is the same computer. It, is, it didn't. It made sense to me. Um, because also I thought of the Next Generation episode where the Enterprise D computer um, becomes sentient. But that one is one where it went haywire. That's right. And the NCC 1701D ultimately ended that episode by ejecting some sort of a physical mass from itself that we never saw again. Yeah, who knows? It happened a lot. <laughs> Let's just put this off into space and hope it doesn't bug anyone else. <laughs> space is very big. Yeah, and speaking of things we'll never see again, what we find out in the show, as we may have mentioned, was that it's set a thousand years in the future, and that raises so many questions, like... Will we ever see either of these characters again? But also, what happened to Discovery and to its crew? Yeah, is this an alternate future? Is this something that is going to happen? Is this uh, like something that is a plot thread off something that's going to happen in Season 2? And they were like, alright, we're going to leave the ship here for a thousand years and we'll come back here in the year like twenty or 3400 and we'll get our ship and we'll do our thing and then go back in time. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, we did see in Season 1 that when they came back from the Mirror Universe, they traveled a few months into the future. So maybe this is some side effect of the Spore Drive? Yeah, possibly. I mean, there's infinite dimensions and infinite diversities, and so who knows? Are you referring to Itic? Maybe. Hmm. <laughs> but it seems unlikely that Discovery could sit untouched by any alien race for a thousand years, because... At some point, this was cutting-edge Starfleet technology, and somebody's going to want that. When your ship's lost in space, like they were next to some kind of um, spatial anomaly because we saw like various lighting and lightning and whatever from outside. We yeah, suck it in. There was definitely a cosmic event occurring, and we don't know if Discovery was trapped and the crew tried to escape. But for some reason, they told the AI to stay right there, and that was a thousand years ago that they told her that. Now, obviously, the AI was not as evolved at that point, but mm-hmm. they were still willing to trust the ship to run itself, even back then. Yeah. So, like, hey, I mean, so obviously, it was an intentional departure, and they thought they were coming back, or they are in some way. It's just time travel, wibbly-wobbly. But this also means that we know the ultimate fate 
of Discovery as far as it pertains to the TV show we've been watching, because in Star Trek Generations, the Enterprise crashed. In Star Trek Beyond, the Enterprise was destroyed. We know that that won't happen to Discovery, assuming this is the same timeline, because it has to be around long enough for Calypso to happen. Well, we don't know. Something could have happened where they're like, all right, we're going to park the ship here for a thousand years and come get it with our time travel device. They could. We don't know. <laughs> it's very strange. Let's talk more about the characters of Kraft, as he has known, as he is known, and Zora. What did you think about their interactions? I had a lot of fun with it. Kraft is a really cool guy. Um, I, I, I think he's, he seemed very interesting. I would love to see more of him. Zora, I'm like <laughs> an AI that's not out to kill everyone. Who's actually just seems charming and warm. I think that's cool. I, I thought the character had. There's a lot of something there. I wish I could explore more. I wish we could get more of these two characters. And I love their interactions. Like, nothing seemed hostile. Nothing ever seemed angry. And other than the, like, crass initial, like, who or what are you? And being unsure. I mean, it's... I mean, he was on the ship of the enemy. So, he's, of course, he's going to be a little uncertain at first. I have two questions there. One is, why do you think their initial interaction in the sick bay? She seemed almost to be going haywire, just randomly turning lights on and off and ejecting drawers. Why do you think she was doing that? Maybe it was more mess of the viewers. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, granted, she had not had any interaction in a thousand years, and maybe she just forgot how. It's possible. Uh, but it set the tone for me that I thought maybe things were going to go mm -hmm. haywire and that this was going to be a not positive interaction. Yeah. Or maybe it was trying to get him to move around and look around like, hey, I'm moving the drawers over here. Come over here. Check this out. Get him to move around so she can measure him better? I don't know. Yeah, because he did take a hold of something he was going to use as a weapon, and that seemed to be something that Zora was proffering to him. But obviously he didn't need it in the end. Mm -hmm. hmm. Now also, you had said that he had reason to be suspicious because he was on the ship of the enemy. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so he mentions um, he's fighting someone named the Vidraeish. Or Vidraish? Yes. And they, they watch the, these people watch something like uh, Betty Boop. <laughs> and he mentions that these people uh, hold on to these ancient, basically the ancient uh, media and whatever like that. They value that. And like, who is this? Who is this? And some commenters noticed that it sounds vaguely like the Federation, Vidraish Federation. Hmm. And like, I didn't pick up on that. I mean, I kind of connected, like, He's obviously talking about humans, but other than that, like I didn't pick on the similarity. Is it obvious that the Vidraish are human? To me, it is, because they have things like classic Americana in their media banks. But I mean, anyone could have picked it up, but I think they would have hinted more towards that if it was the case. But we also know that the Enterprise has Klingon opera in its database. Yeah, that doesn't yeah, make them I, Klingon. Like I said, I think they would have hinted a little more towards that if that's what they were going for, though. I had to rewatch the episode to confirm that Kraft himself was human. Yeah, oh yeah, she mentioned Zora mentions um, humans on the planet. Right. There was oh, a you know, in her database of a thousand years ago, there were no human settlements on Alcor four, but her database was out of date. But when she said that he was on an enemy escape shuttle and that escape shuttle had Betty Boop, that made me think that the escape shuttle belonged to humans. And so yeah. that made me think that he was not. But rewatching it, I think that either both sides are human or the Vidraish collect human media artifacts. That's a possibility. I mean, we literally te or technically don't know. Right. Just, uh... 
yeah, Memory Alpha seems to imply that Vidraish are aliens, but since this is set a thousand years in the future, we may never find out. Yeah, or we'll find out in season two. <laughs> so what else did you notice about this episode? I love the food where she's or, uh, Zora's introducing food to craft, like uh, waffles. And you pour syrup on it. Yeah, and the concept of Taco Tuesday. What's a Tuesday? <laughs> Now, that caught me off guard because he asked her, how long have you been waiting out here? And she says a thousand years, and that's meaningful to him. He understands that unit of time, but not what a Tuesday is. But years break down into months and then weeks and then days, and yet he doesn't know the names of the days? I can see it making sense uh, two ways. Uh, One, by then, Elcor, a thousand years later, Elcor might have their own date. Two, we know everyone uses Stardate when they're in space. Oh, that's a good point. You know what? That's true. Maybe even in the modern age of the Star Treks we do watch, maybe they don't know what Tuesday is either. Right. And like, like Spock does, because he knows, uh, <laughs> um, what was it? He made a reference to a date, something like that. This was 1,300 years ago, two months, three weeks, and four days ago, a Tuesday. <laughs> oh, when was that? Like that? I think it was in Trouble with Tribbles or something like that. I don't remember exactly. But, uh, huh. Some people use weekdays, and they did an Enterprise still. Yes, I definitely remember that happening with Captain Archer, where he, they didn't have star dates. Didn't they say, like, May 25th, 2063 or whatever? Yeah. Obviously not 2063. I'm off by, like, a. You get the idea. Years. You get the idea. <laughs> okay, so that's reasonable. I mean, I am looking up the Wikipedia page for Tuesday, because I was curious how old <laughs> Tuesday is. Are you laughing at me? <laughs> Dear Wikipedia, Memory Alpha, what is Tuesday? <laughs> Well, it dates Computer. back to, the, to date, how hush, how quaint. It does seem to date back to ancient Greece, just like Calypso. So you're saying a thousand years from now, they might not know what Tuesday is, but a thousand years ago, we knew what Tuesday was. Yeah, but a different planet. It's true. Okay. Different type of human. What other things did you pick up on? Oh, by the way, this is two short trucks in a row where significant scenes happen in the mess hall. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Someone cleaned up after Tilly. <laughs> a thousand years later, still we see all these space rabbits running around. Because a thousand years later, they have breeded and taken over the place, kind of like Tribbles would. That would happen in Red Dwarf. Oh, gosh. <laughs> the ship's cat uh, turned into a whole sub-race of cats in the in the bottom dwellings of the ship. And there was a humanoid cats with their own religion and everything like that. I don't think we're going to see a Red Dwarf reference in Calypso. Probably not. <laughs> I don't know. There were Star Trek references. There was. There was in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. There was a Red Dwarf reference. Really? It was on a board in the promenade talking about the Jupiter mining um, company. Oh, fascinating. I didn't know that. Having never yeah. seen Red Dwarf, I, that would have been lost on me. Huh. <laughs> anyway, Calypso. Wait, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. This <laughs> makes two episodes in a row where a human is in the mess hall trying to determine what race or species this new character is. Yeah, I didn't of that. Yeah. And then they bond over food. The, the difference being last time it was the human giving the alien food, this time it's the alien giving mm-hmm. the human food. And by alien, I mean AI. Right, right. Um, and speaking of food, there were some very interesting things that happened on the bridge. Those, I would say the bridge and the mess hall were probably the most important sets for this episode. And on the bridge... One of my favorite details of the entire episode was Kraft eating popcorn out of a little popcorn box with the Starfleet logo on it. 
I love their little take on the traditional, what we know now as the like, red and white popcorn box. Right. As, and then having their little st- Starfleet. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you got to wonder, was this already a pattern in their database where they can replicate this as needed? Or was this something that Zora was like, oh, we're going to be watching movies and my craft I'm, and my crew needs popcorn. I better make sure that this is properly branded. <laughs> And who can because who would care? Like, oh, is that a regulation popcorn tin? I don't think so. To, to the brink oh, with you. Ma- now you're making me question uh, in Voyager, there was an episode where the crew, or, or no, Tom and Bolana were on a movie set or in a theater in the holodeck. I can't remember what their popcorn boxes looked like. They went to a 3D movie. And certainly they did watch a lot of 2D movies on Enterprise. Yeah. But oh, I, don't, I don't remember if popcorn was, pat- <laughs> was part of that, though. <laughs> yeah, it was. Okay. But they didn't have the Starfleet thing. Oh, man. Now I have to research this. <laughs> oh, wait. You know what? I'm going to the Memory Alpha page for popcorn. All right. Here oh, it beautiful. is. It's a human snack food. Hey. It has shown up in two episodes, three episodes of Enter, four episodes of Enterprise. Uh, one episode of DS9. It's only a paper moon. You see Nog eating popcorn while watching movies. I love that episode. And then, of course, Tom Paris recreated the Palace Theater to watch Attack of the Lobster People. <laughs> uh, Neelix offered them popcorn, either buttered or unbuttered. <laughs> I love Neelix. <laughs> <laughs> I am fond of him as well. Oh, and there's a little picture of Dr. Flox eating popcorn. He is eating it out of a glass bowl. Yeah, I remember in Enterprise, there was nothing, no Starfleet branding, but <laughs> I remember Voyager. <laughs> I love that I'm recording a podcast with one of my best friends talking about popcorn. In Star Trek. In science fiction, yes. <laughs> of, all, of all the places I thought my career would take me, this was not one of them. <laughs> Yay. Okay. So, also, they used the view screen on the bridge of the Discovery to watch movies, which all my life, I've been watching Star Trek since 1987. That is 31 years. It never occurred to me, I bet we could play Mario Kart up here. <laughs> um, better yet. They were using the entire deck with the holographic imagery they have to watch the 3D version of the movie. That's right. This this is not technology that we've seen elsewhere in Star Trek. And you're right that they took full advantage of those hollow emitters to make non-tangible 3D projections based on a classic 2D artifact, that being the movie Funny Face with Audrey Hepburn and Fred Astaire. Yeah, I was like, oh, <laughs> I really, I want to watch, I want this to... This, if this is where 3D technology went to, I would be all for it, uh, as, as opposed to the 3D stuff we got a few years ago. Right. We have had 3D remakes of classic 2D films. Like last year, for the 20th anniversary of Judgment Day, I saw Terminator 2 in theaters in 3D, and it was kind of cool, but compared to what you're getting on Discovery, doesn't hold a candle. <laughs> it was pretty quick. It was pretty I kick ass. <laughs> now, have you seen the 2D version of Funny Face? No, um, we were talking a little before the show. Like, I, I, I may have thought I did, but a lot of the movies have similar looks and, um, and like layouts and whatever like that. Like, I thought I did, but no, apparently I had not. But I do want to see it, and it's something that was up my alley. I just shocked I hadn't seen it, to be honest. Yeah, I confused it with another movie that I also have not seen, being Funny Girl with Barbara Streisand based on the Broadway production where she played the same character, and that was her movie debut, actually. But I've not seen Funny Face or Funny Girl, and they are completely unrelated. So, no, long 
answer to a short question. I haven't seen it, but I should. Related to this, related to this, something I thought was interesting is that Kraft chose the transporter room to make a bunk. Put his cot up, or his hammock in. Aren't there quarters on Discovery? Exactly. So I'm wondering what happened here. Why was he using the transporter room as a place to sleep? We did see him being railroaded by Zora into the mess hall. Maybe she also said, this is where you can sleep. Maybe there... Because there were no quarters available. Right. Maybe there are some corpses there. Not that I think Zora is responsible, but nonetheless, if I had a dead body in my house, I wouldn't expect somebody to sleep next to it. Yeah. Or she's expecting the crew back. Like, why would I... I can't let them sleep in these rooms. They're they're coming back any day. That's true. Maybe she's just being respectful. She's like, oh, yeah, these rooms are empty, but my crew, hopefully, optimistically, could come back any day now. Sort of like Ray waiting for her planets back on the desert planet. No, they're never coming back, Ray. You have to let them go. They were nothing. You're nothing. You come from nothing. Join me. We'll rule the universe. <laughs> now I'm having flashbacks to Red Dwarf again. <laughs> How? That was not Red Dwarf. What are you talking about? No, I'm thinking of... um. When they discover Crichton, uh, the android, he's actually a chef. He's serving a dead crew, but he doesn't realize they're dead. <laughs> oh, that seems sad. Yeah, they they kind of dropped that storyline when they actually added him to the roster of the cast. But, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Something that happened on the bridge that I'm very curious about was the what I would call the film's climax, where Kraft dresses himself up as Fred Astaire. Mm. And dances with Zora. You're making little noises. What's going on? It was so sweet. It was so romantic. <laughs> was it? Tell me about it. Well, he was just trying to... Uh, I don't know. He was just doing something nice back for Zora after she'd done so much for him. That was really sweet. It was very thoughtful. Very few people, I suspect, would see a computer, especially a disembodied one, as something needing as something with emotional needs and willing to go out of their way to do something nice for it. Wouldn't even register on their radar. And yet that occurred to Kraft when he got the experience of being out in the bay with the birds and the waves and the thrumming. He was like, this feels like being a home. What can I do in exchange? What can I do for you? And he taught himself to dance, which was awfully sweet. Obviously, even though he's a reluctant warrior, he seems to move like one. He's very agile and very spry on his feet. Here, the computer shared her favorite piece of media that's in her story base, something so intimate and sweet. And he basically takes her on a date there. I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, although it was a short-lived one. Yeah, but still, this, this, it was so sweet. I was very happy. <laughs> now, something I can't figure out about that scene. I don't know who played the holographic Zora. All the credits I see say that she was voiced by Annabelle Wallace, who I want to talk about in a second. But I can't find out who physically portrayed Zora. It obviously was not Audrey Hepburn. Mm -hmm. I don't know the answer to that one either. And I wonder why this person is going uncredited, or if maybe my Google Foo is just weak and I can't figure it out. Uh, have you seen an image for the voice actor? Is it the same person? It could be. Actually, now that, I've, now that I pull up Annabelle Wallace in the IMDb, it could be her, but I don't know her well enough. I don't think it is. So a couple of interesting things about Annabelle Wallace. One is that, as recently as this year, she is or was in a relationship with Chris Pine. That, of course, being the actor who plays Captain Kirk in the most recent movies. And then also, her uncle is Richard Harris, who played not only King Arthur in the musical Camelot, 
but also was Dumbledore in the very first few Harry Potter movies. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so she comes from a long line of actors, or at least one actor, and she's in a relationship with another one. But she's probably most recently known for being in the movie The Mummy with Tom Cruise, but I still don't know if that was her dancing with Kraft. The way the cinematography was kind of made her fade, you know, it was a holographic image, and they were kind of making it faded intentionally. By the way, that was some fantastic special effects where these two people are dancing, but one of them is glowy and translucent. Yeah. It, I kind of felt like I was watching Mary Poppins. No, I can see that. I can totally see that. Yeah. I, because, really, I really dug that scene. Oh. I mean, it makes me wonder from a technical perspective if... Did they film this as two people dancing and they added an effect to one of them? Or did they film it as one person dancing and then they digitally added the other, which would be more authentic to what actually happened in the episode? Yeah, I really don't know. I, I, I was wondering that too when I watched it. Like, Did they just film this dancing together or not? So, I don't know. I suspect they were in the same room when they filmed it, but I don't know either. But eventually she decides he should go home. I thought it interesting in that same scene where when Audrey Hepburn first shows up, Kraft says hold, and the program freezes, which I guess is the word that they use instead of freeze program. And she stops, and he asks for a more authentic interpretation, and then Zora shows up, and they dance, and again he says hold, and she stops, just like a holographic program. And I thought it interesting that this technically is Zora, who we can see to a great degree has her own will, and yet... She is still obedient to commands. Even as she's verbally pleading with him not to leave, that holographic program isn't chasing after him. The words aren't coming out of her mouth. It's still a program that is designed to obey humans. Um, you can see it that way. You can also see just the computer's representation of stop, we have to stop this kiss. <laughs> or like, it, I mean, technically maybe, but it also felt real to me. Like, like this is the computer's just saying... Or the computer's a way of expressing someone stopping in, if it was two actual people. I can see that. That's possible. I There's also the possibility that the holographic representation would have physically backed off and just said, like, hey, what's wrong? Are you okay? Like a real person would. Mm-hmm. But And then that last moment where a single tear rolls down her eye, even though the program is frozen, that still happened. Yeah. yeah. Oh. I could feel her. I could. Oh my god. <laughs> Are you okay? I'm all right. I I, I uh, recently had a thing, so I, I, I'm like I'm all with her. I'm all yeah, with Zora. I, I can you. understand exactly how she's going. Um, but but you'll notice that Zora filmed that scene because at the end, when Kraft is leaving the shuttlecraft, we see the two of them dancing, not the movie Funny Face, but yeah. Zora and Kraft dancing in the shuttle bay. She'll always have the memories. That's right. And bittersweet or good as they are. <laughs> she might be alone for another thousand years, but she has this brief interlude, this brief romance to sustain her and to remember. <laughs> did you see it coming up that the shuttle was going to have that name on it? No, I didn't. I was waiting to figure out what it was. What, what, what's it going to be? What's it going to be? <laughs> I was like, aw. <laughs> that was the only part of this episode that I figured out ahead of time. Yeah, I liked that. I thought that was cute. Because what I had missed... I watched the episode twice. I knew that they had just had that shuttle delivered and that it had never been tested. I missed the part where she specifically said it hasn't even been named yet. Yep, yep. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that gives her the chance to name it. Uh-huh. Oh. And so we also see, I mean, kind of, she does have some kind of free will. 
That's right. And perhaps even some creativity. <laughs> oh. uh, speaking oh. of being creative, we see Kraft wearing a disco shirt. Yes, yes. <laughs> and it has the wrong font. I noticed that too. I was like, what? Apparently they changed the font in a thousand years. Like just a few minutes before this episode aired on our at Transporter Lock Twitter handle, we tweeted a photo of you and me wearing that shirt. And I so that font was very recent in my memory. And I was like, that is not the right font. Yeah, I noticed the same dang thing. <laughs> I was like, what? And I'm wondering if this is sort of like when they introduce a new Transformer so that they can sell the toy. If now they can say, oh, oh now you can buy Kraft's disco shirt. <laughs> it's just got to catch them all. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. We didn't talk much. We didn't mention that he had a family back at home. He had not seen him in 10 years. Yeah, he left his son when his son was one month old. And the son would probably now be about 10 or 11. And he has a wife, and we presume that they're both still alive, but we don't know if this is on Alcor 4. We don't know if they're still alive as a result of the war with the Vidraish. Yeah, and he's a reluctant soldier. Yeah, too. we did mention that, but we don't know how he got conscripted, if this was the government forced him into it, or if he had to to protect his own because nobody else would. Uh, he did say that there are fewer and fewer humans on Alcor 4 every day. Yeah. But we don't know what's become of the Federation. And this actually brings up a larger question that I want to ask you about. How do you feel about this episode being totally divorced of any familiar character or continuity that we have so far known? Needed? I don't know. Uh, to, to me, the situation that they shove it in a thousand years in the future makes makes me think this is going to relate to the season. Because there's no need to have it a thousand years in the future. Uh, Maybe because they still wanted a human character for some reason. Like, well, how would a human character not know what Discovery is from that timeline? Or or at least what a Federation ship is? Do you think they could have told a story where he wakes up on an abandoned Discovery without it being set in the future? Yeah, you know what? He would have recognized it as a Federation ship. So maybe it had to be a thousand years in the future. Hmm. Or if maybe, they wanted to use a human. Or maybe he could have... Right. That's it exactly. Maybe he could not have been human. Yeah. Maybe it had to be. Maybe it had to be. And the fact that they chose Discovery. It still, it still, to me, it feels like it's something that's going to be relevant to the season. I have a lot of questions about it being set in the future. I don't like the idea of knowing the ultimate fate of Discovery. I feel like that, to a degree, sort of, they've, they've tied their hands and now they have to tell that story. But other than that, compared to the Runaway episode where you and I watched, I felt like Runaway, which was actually several minutes shorter than this one, I felt like it was too neat a package. We had an entire story told beginning to end in 12 minutes, and it was all tied up with a neat little bow at the end. Whereas this episode that we just saw, I feel like we, we came into the middle of something, and there were still so many questions left at the end. And for that reason, I loved it. Yeah. Well, I really dug this episode, too. The, the first one, I felt Runaway felt more like they edited it too much. Because some of it just felt like, oh, this is too rushed. You, can, you could have sucked out another minute or two to make this uh, flesh out a bit more. I absolutely well. agree. So yeah, Calypso, I really enjoyed it. I really loved this one. I was concerned that my first impression of Short Treks was not overly positive, And I thought that might be a harbinger of, I thought that might be a bellwether of what was to come. But after watching Calypso, I'm like, no, give me more of this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what also something i thought about remember it was a few year or so ago paramount put out these new guidelines for truck fandom to make their own shows because x and r screwed things up 
<laughs> like, and so they can't make an episode longer than like 10, 15 minutes or whatever like that. And I was like, how could you tell a good, my thought was, well, how could you tell a good story uh, in that amount of time? And like, here they're proving <laughs> it can be done. Absolutely. Yeah, I, th- I think the rules that we've put on fanfic are ridiculous and unnecessary, and we worked very well without those rules for many years. But you're right that even though fanfiction is now limited to a certain amount of time, CBS themselves are demonstrating that that amount of time is enough to tell a good story. Yeah, with characters who are not in any known universe. And completely new actors. Yeah, so I don't th- I doubt that was their intention going in, but it shows it can be done. I am glad I didn't watch the trailer for this episode because it says in written text right in the trailer, set a thousand years in the future. <laughs> like, spoiler, why would they do that? I thought that was a really important part of the episode to discover organically. Whoever makes these um, does their best to try to make it enticing for people to watch, even though the people who are going to watch are already going to watch. Yeah. <laughs> they do a bad job. But next episode... There's also the fact that the trailer itself, since Short Treks is so short, the trailer is 10% of the entire episode. (laughs) Yes. And so I have skipped the trailer for the next episode. Is that the escape artist? Uh, I don't remember the name, but it's it's the episode with Saru. That is not the escape artist. Okay. Okay. The escape artist is the one written by Mike Mahan, who is doing Lower Decks, as we discussed at the top of the hour. Okay. Yeah, that's right. I remember seeing a tagline saying, bringing back everybody's favorite Kelpian. I'm like, he's the only one we've seen who didn't become soup. (laughs) Come on. We don't have a lot of choices here. Our favorite and only living Kelpian. We saw a few others in the mirror universe. I suppose that they did survive and didn't become soup. but I was pretty fond of number one. (laughs) Which one was that? Kelpian number one. I don't know. Oh, I see. (laughs) Kelpian number one. Oh, by the way, very minor observation. The second time I watch these short treks, I tend to do it with the captions on, just to make sure I didn't miss anything the first time. When I watched Runaway with the captions, there were no apostrophes. That's weird. So all the contractions, like don't, were spelled like D-O-N-T. Don't. Yeah, and I can figure it out, but it was disconcerting for somebody who you know, is very meticulous with his copy editing. That's really Th- weird. This week, they had apostrophes. There is one instance where they confused it's with it's, and that is a human error that occurs frequently, but I was so glad to see the captions back. I think it might have been an issue in Runaway with the fact that they were using smart quotes or curly quotes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And some fonts have trouble with what you call high ASCII characters. They get stripped out or they get turned into other characters. And so even though they were using smart quotes this week, I think whatever algorithm they were using for short treks just stripped out all the high ASCII characters. Gotcha. It's possible. Yeah. yeah. So that was a very minute but disconcerting observation. No, it can be important, though, especially for someone who actually needs um, the captions to be able to enjoy the material. That's a good point. And I'm very glad that they do have them and that they do seem accurate other than that one point because... I think Star Trek, uh, consistent with the philosophy of Idic, should be accessible to everybody. So I think it's great that they do have captions. Anyway, I think that brings us to the end of this week's episode of Transporter Lock. Yeah, um, go watch Funny Face. <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably accidentally watch Funny Girl. <laughs> uh, and then I'll go back and watch Calypso. And I'm like, this is nothing like Funny Girl. What's happening? <laughs> Who are these people? Who is Who, this? Where is Barbara Streisand? <laughs> She's on beaches. But we don't know why, because it's the Streisand effect. She tries to hide it. <laughs> All right. 
Well then, I guess signing off, this is Chief Engineer Ken Gagney. And this is Captain Sabriel. Have a wonderful month. We'll talk to you again soon. Or in the meantime, on Twitter at TransporterLog. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com. What, what race is Saru? Um... El Elkampen? No. No. Alterian? No. no. Ferengi? What? No. Is it? Come on. We knew this. <laughs> <laughs>